going to be in um, Acts chapter 14 this evening. For those of you uh, who maybe just started attending, we've been going through Acts for the past number of months. Uh, I think it's been encouraging for all of us how relevant this book in, uh, is in the times we find ourselves in. So we are in Acts 14. I'm going to read to verse 23, and then we'll pray. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, under the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lysonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also were men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your living, enduring word. We are in a day and time when opinions abound. Uh, it's easy to get distracted, to lose our way. And so all the more important that we return regularly 
to the recalibrating, truthful, straight north way of your word. Those who meditate on your word and find the Christ that your word points to will never be astray, led astray. Help us this evening as we consider the good news. It is good news. And encourage us. Lord, continue the saints here. Uh, Continue to encourage the saints here to walk in faithfulness despite uh, the forces that may increasingly be against them. Through many trials, we must enter the kingdom. Be with us this evening, I pray in your name. Amen. Um, I'll be honest with everyone right off the bat. Uh, This is one of those weeks where the weakness of the messenger feels uh, incredibly real for me. Um, I won't go into details, but I just want to talk about the good news this evening. And uh, really my hope is that we'll all be encouraged, all of us, me included, by the reality and the truth and the goodness of it. We're going to look at three things the good news does from Acts 14. It may not immediately seem like good news, but it is. Number one, we're going to see that the good news brings division. Number two, we're going to see that the good news brings illumination. Number three, we're going to see that the good news brings tribulation. We left off in our previous chapter seeing that Paul and Barnabas have left Antioch. Antioch. Uh, It says there in verse 51, they shook off the dust from their feet and against them and uh, went to Iconium. Uh, Now at that time, the further south from Antioch you went, the further you went into pagan territory. At least here in verse 1, we see that in Iconium there's at least a synagogue. When they eventually get to Lystra in verse 9, all you have are pagan temples. So they begin preaching the good news of Jesus Christ there in verse 1. And we're told there that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. As we continue on to verse 7, we see that the people of Iconium were given every opportunity to hear And receive this good news. We're told in verse 1 that the apostles spoke in such a way that many people believed. So it wasn't that the message wasn't clear. The gospel was presented in a logical, clear, easy to follow way. We're also told in verse 3 that they, they stayed for a long time speaking boldly. So this wasn't just a kind of a flash in the pan ministry. They'd stayed behind to ensure everyone who wanted to hear the good news would hear it. It also says in verse 3 there that the Lord bore witness to the preaching with both signs and wonders. So the proclamation of good news was also accompanied by these signs and wonders and power. So it's not as if Paul and Barnabas just kind of blew through Iconium, you know, sorry guys, you snooze, you lose. Everyone here had the opportunity to wrestle with the good news. It was a careful, extended ministry. 
And yet we see that the response, the difference between responses here was stark. You would think that if someone brought some objectively good news, there would be across-the-board agreement, acceptance, celebration. And yet, following a similar pattern that we've observed throughout Acts, we're told in verse 4 here that the city was divided. We have the unbelieving Jews who show up in verse 2, it says there to poison the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers, spreading false accusations and lies and rumors. Whatever they have to do to discredit their character so that hopefully no one will listen to their ministry and their message. They're bitty, a bitter, envious, resentful people. Eventually, it comes to the point in verse 5 where this plot is being hatched by this contingent of both Jews and Gentiles to stone them. So it wasn't just the Jews, it was the Gentiles too. As we'll see in the next section, it gets even worse in Lystra. Again, you've got some people who believe. We know this because when they go back around in verse 21 to strengthen the believers, they return to Lystra. So there was some believers there. But initially, it's even worse than it was in Iconium. They barely get their message out before the crowds, seemingly as one, are, are dragging them out to stone them. Obviously, there's, there's been some success here on the first missionary journey, but it also s- seems like things just get messy wherever they go. Now, if, if Paul and Barnabas were the kind of... Um, forward-thinking evangelicals that are proliferating today, they might have called the Jerusalem councils together before they went any further. Look, guys, we got a PR problem here. we got to retool this message or, or tone it down or do something because wherever we go, we end up alienating people from each other. To the point where, here, whole cities are being torn apart. We've got Jews trying to smear our reputation on the one hand, Gentiles plotting against us on the other hand. Not only are our lives in danger, but all this division is bringing disrepute on the message we're trying to get through. Dare I say it, our witness is at stake. We're doing something wrong. We've got to change something. But they didn't do that. Because as messy as it was, everything was exactly as it should be. Our problem is that we're often confused as to what exactly the gospel is supposed to achieve. If the purpose of the gospel, such as we find in verse 7, the proclamation of the good news, in verse 15, if, if the good news is supposed to be a launching point for some new age of harmony between mankind, then yes, we are definitely doing something wrong. But that's not actually what it does. Jesus tells us what it does. In Matthew 10, verse 34, he's correcting here a notion that seems to be spreading among 
his disciples. And it's, it's very alive today too. He says, and these are hard words, but they're true words. Don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that there is salvation in no other name given to men under heaven. Proclaimed as what it is, namely as a demand and not a suggestion, it isn't a net that just scoops everyone up at once. Rather, it's more like a sieve. Some fall through, others are rescued. You might look at a sieve and say, wow, what a flawed design. How can it be an effective bowl when it's got holes in it? But the problem isn't the sieve. The problem is that you don't understand the function of a sieve. A sieve is a tool that does exactly what it's supposed to do. And it's just like the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel is to be proclaimed indiscriminately to all people, without exception. But some will hear and believe, like we see in verses 1 and verses 21. Others will hear and reject it. To some, it will be the sweetest, most compelling, best news they've ever heard. And they will leave behind anything in order to get it. To others, it will be the most foolish, the most offensive, the most presumptuous load of garbage that they have ever heard. And they will do anything they can to suppress it. Whatever else the gospel is, it's not benign. It's not overlookable. It's not a message that you can hear and be non-responsive about. If Acts has shown us anything, it's shown us that the gospel is more like a force of nature. It's a hurricane. It's an unstoppable force. It blows through and nothing is like it, what, it, what it was before. Levels towns, divides people. And there's really no way to get around the upheaval that the proclamation of a king and a kingdom brings. You can't avoid it. You can't fit a kingdom down behind the butcher's shop next to the bowling alley and have it stay there nice and contained and isolated. No, a kingdom spills out, it spills over, it encroaches. It inevitably upsets the balance of things, just as it did here in Iconium. Look, a, a whole city is divided here. But it doesn't mean anything is wrong. I'm sure you're already making some connections in your mind here. I don't want to belabor the point. But we're seeing similar divisions in our own day between families and friends and coworkers and systems and established structures on a scale we've never really seen before in our lifetimes. I'm not even talking about vaccinations here. 
though that's part of the whole discussion. I'm talking about certain priorities where lines have been drawn regarding the demands of the gospel, which don't just end with repent and believe, by the way. The fact that half of Iconium repented of their sins and believed the gospel wasn't what divided the city. What divided the city was that their new priorities, the priorities of the now saved Greeks, bringing those priorities to their business practices and their worship rituals and their family lives and their civil interactions. When a bunch, look, when a bunch of polytheistic pagans who were fine with all kinds of immorality and emperor worship and a variety of other things suddenly start affirming that Jesus Christ is the king, things are going to get messy. Now, let's all be honest for a second. Nothing about that process is easy. I realize that. I know there's people in our church right now who are suffering and struggling with all kinds of upset in their lives. It's been a difficult two years. We were nice and warm and comfortable in our beds, and God came along and dumped a big old pail of cold water on us. And that was, that was his mercy to us. Because spiritual complacency is a way more dangerous condition than we're in now. There's other dangers now. There's other dangers. And it isn't that. My point is that if our only category is that division equals bad and harmony equals good, we need to have a hard, long look about what we've actually committed to as Christians. Jesus goes on in that passage to say, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And maybe what's happening is our old lives unravel and division increases. And our old complacent ways of doing things is just gone. Maybe what's happening is that we're actually getting back to the right road. Maybe as we're in the process of losing our lives, we're actually on the way back to finding them. Secondly, the good news brings illumination. Let's look at the substance of what is causing so much division here. What's the content of this carpet bomb that is the good news that is causing so much ruckus well the prophet isaiah prophesied about a time when the people who walk in darkness will see a great light and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness will have light shone onto them maybe you've encountered this kind of deep darkness when we were little we used to spend several weeks of our summers at a rustic little cabin in the middle of the Bancroft woods. And it should be a saying that there's really no darkness like Bancroft darkness. Um, out there, there's no street lights, no ambient light. 
At night, it's just literally, you can't see your hand in front of your face. There's deep darkness. But the kind of darkness that Isaiah was talking about wasn't physical. Rather, he was referring to deep spiritual pagan darkness. Lands where the light of Yahweh's revelation had not penetrated. In the epic poem, Beowulf, the author describes something of that darkness and the futility of paganism. This is important because it will give us some understanding of how jarring this light and truth of Paul's message would have been to these people. Sometimes at pagan shrines, they vowed offering to idols, swore oaths that the killer of souls might come to their aid and save the people. That was their way, their heathenish hope. Deep in their hearts, they remembered hell. The almighty judge of good deeds and bad, the Lord God, head of heaven and high king of the world, was unknown to them. O cursed is he who in time of trouble has to thrust his soul in the fire's embrace, forfeiting help. He has nowhere to turn. He has nowhere to turn. The world of paganism was and is an endless dark tunnel with no escape. A sad and hopeless state. But thank God, it was never his intention that they would stay there. With the incarnation and the appointed man, Jesus Christ, revealed as the one who would come to rescue a people from their sins, light had finally come. And yeah, if you've ever come out of a dark room into light, that's a painful entrance. But you can see now, you're no longer blind. So the apostles become these light bringers, really, taking up their lanterns of the good news and plunging into the dark fields and forests of paganism to show the way out, as jarring as that may be, for those who had nowhere to turn. Just so we're on the same page here, we're living in almost Lystrian darkness right now in our culture. We're not in Antioch. We're not dealing with people who grew up in Sunday school and who know half the story. We're dealing with people who, almost to a man, are totally biblically illiterate. And that awareness needs to shape how we bring the light of the gospel. You can't just ram seeds into unprepared soil and hope for a crop. You can't just start with the good news of Jesus Christ as good as it is in a culture where Jesus is just one God among many. Pagans don't affirm your premises. They aren't sure if God is one. They aren't sure if God is the creator. They aren't sure if he's good even. The Jews would have affirmed all of that. See, the Jews knew the story up until Christ. They could affirm that God was one and that he was the creator and that he was the source of all good. That's why Peter and Stephen and Jesus could spend their time debating the Old Testament with them. But with pagans, you weren't dealing with people who know the details of the story. And that's why Paul's expression of the good news here is totally different from Peter's in Acts chapter 2. One commentator says this about Paul's mini-sermon here in verses 15 to 17. What we have here is not evangelism in the normal New Testament sense of proclaiming Christ and his saving work. However, it is a biblical foundation for evangelism in a culture where fundamental presuppositions about God and nature and the meaning of human existence 
need to be challenged. That's where we're at today in our culture, where fundamental presuppositions about God and nature and the meaning of human existence need to be challenged. So Paul goes back to the beginning here. So we're reading it. If he'd had a chance, he likely would have given the entire sermon he does in Acts 17. It's the same kind of context. But he doesn't have a chance, does he? He barely has time to get this out. It says here in verse 13 that the priests of Zeus and Hermes already want to sacrifice to them because after seeing this man who was born lame suddenly healed, well, in their pagan categories, they assume that Paul and Barnabas are gods, Zeus and Hermes. According to Ovid, an early Roman poet, legend has it that the Greek gods Hermes and Zeus came to a town actually near the city of Lystra disguised as two peasants. According to this legend, everyone in the city refused them hospitality except one elderly couple. They decided to rescue the elderly couple, but Zeus ended up destroying the rest of the city with a flood. It's actually basically Sodom and Gomorrah with a few different plot elements. That's likely why the people of Leicester received Paul and Barnabas so eagerly here. They don't want to end up the same as that other city. They don't want to make the same mistake. So Paul here has to present a compact defense of the God of the Scriptures. And he does it by touching on three main points. He's a living God, he's a creating God, and he's a gracious God. First of all, he states in verse 15, that God is a living God, a living God. The Greek gods didn't exist apart from their myths. They only had life and personalities as long as they had their poets. It's the reason so many of their gods are so immoral and capricious and impulsive and irritable. They were just gods made in the image of corruptible man, as Romans 1 puts it. In verse 15, Paul calls the worship of these gods vain things. If you're doing something that's vain, you're doing something that produces no result. It's like feeding coin after coin into a broken gumball machine, expecting gum to come out. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. Paul's looking around, as he does in Acts 17, seeing all these elaborate idols and temples and ceremonies and all these priests. And it's all for things that don't exist. In contrast, Paul brings up the living God in verse 15. As opposed to the human-invented gods that were totally dependent on their worshipers, the true God is inherently life, inherently living. He is independent and self-sustaining. Nobody brought God into being. In Acts 17, Paul states that he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't require anything outside of his own triune Godhead in order to be complete or to flourish. Paul also states in verse 15 that he's the creator. Not only has he not been brought into being, but rather he himself brings into being. His logos, his word, enters the swirling chaos, order and beauty are the result. Paul says here that he made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Creation isn't just the product of a group collaboration of gods, 
nor is it as secular paganism would have it, the result of blind impersonal force plus time plus chance. But he doesn't stop here. The last point Paul brings up is, is the goodness, the graciousness of God. And he articulates this graciousness as revealed specifically in his unasked for generosity. We're told in verse 16 that in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now Paul's not saying here in verse 16 that God gave the nations kind of a free pass until Christ came. Rather, in letting all nations go their own way, Paul is saying that in the past, pagan nations were not the focus of God's attention. Israel was. It's not a parent overlooking the misbehavior of another child. It's a parent letting that other child go its own way. And yet, Paul says, that God did not leave himself without testimony. If you've ever read a mystery novel, you know that criminal masterminds are often leaving behind something to remind people of their genius. That's not a great analogy, but God does something similar by providing rain and sun, fruitful seasons so that crops can grow, and so that even spiritually blind people can experience some measure of joy and gladness. The God of the Bible is not only kind and patient, but he gives generously. That's the kind of God he is. He is unlike any God in all the mythology and religions of the world. And yet in these last days, Paul says, God, again in his mercy, is no longer letting nations go their own way. Again, Paul says in Acts 17, those times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How different Jesus Christ is from other gods. He's not a God who came to be served like Hermes and Zeus but the Son of God who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to destroy, but so the sick and the lost and the blind might be saved through him. Look, was he received when he came to earth disguised in an unbeautiful form? Did priests run out wanting to make sacrifices to him? and offer him hospitality? No, he was despised and rejected. He was turned out of city after city. The Son of God, the creator of the world, had nowhere to lay his head. And in that meekness, we find the light of the gospel, that he laid down his own precious life. We could be saved. The good news is not simply an item of information. Hey, I know you're having a great time over there in paganism. We're having fun over here too. The proclamation is an invitation 
a demand to turn, to repent, away from death towards life, away from darkness towards light, to turn from the vain things to the valuable thing. And it will be worth every hardship you have to endure. Which brings us to our next point, and that is that the good news brings tribulation. It isn't long before the Jews find their way to Lystra. In verse 19, we see they manage to convince these people that, no, these guys aren't actually gods. They're what you see before you. They're just some troublemaking Christians from Antioch. Why don't you help us stomp them out for good? So that's what they do. The crowds turn on Paul. They stone him and drag him out of the city. I'm not actually sure where Barnabas was at this point. I imagine that if Paul was the chief speaker, chances are he was also the focus of their attack. Uh, Amazingly, in verse 20, whether they didn't do their job well, or we're witnessing a resurrection event, Paul just stands back up. And what does he do? (laughs) What does Paul do? He goes back into the city in which just stoned him. He knows that God isn't finished with him yet. And then he goes to another pagan city, 65 miles south, Derby. Has a fruitful time there, again, preaching the light of the gospel. And then he goes back up north again, stopping in every city where he originally preached, appointing elders in the churches and encouraging them with one message. Verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I'll bet they needed to hear that message. We've already looked at the division that the message of the gospel did. A lot of people are likely struggling, maybe wondering if this was a good decision to make. Yeah, maybe our old gods were not gods, were just vain, but at least we were able to function in society, believing them. Now we're just ostracized and isolated. We're viewed as traitors to our people, our religion, our culture. Paul comes with a strengthening reminder, and I think it will be strengthening for us today. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The good news is that we're not currently in the kingdom of God, fully realized. Uh, This would be a pretty anticlimactic kingdom. The harder news to hear is that before we arrive at that kingdom, we must endure many tribulations. In the Pilgrim's Progress, When Christian initially flees the city of destruction, he's accompanied by a man named Pliable who likes the idea of heaven. He's happy to stroll down the road talking about all the glories when they get there. Then they both fall into a swamp. Pliable asks Christian, is this the happiness you've told me about? If we have had such bad luck at our first setting out, What may we expect between here and our journey's end? If I get out of here, you can possess the brave country alone. With that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire, and away he went, and Christians saw him no more. Pliable set out on a journey 
not having counted the cost of what it would mean to follow Jesus. If you haven't read The Pilgrim's Progress, I encourage it to you. It is a book for our time, I'll tell you. And it illustrates so well what Paul is trying to convey here. Through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's the essence of what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange, just like the division. It's completely normal. It's to be expected. We don't like that category. We would rather the trial be the exception and the smooth road be the norm. But if that's our expectation, we just won't be faithful in our day. We can't be. We're going to end up pulling back whenever we come to a road that looks dark and twisted and dangerous. But Christian, that is our road. And the good news is that Jesus has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He doesn't tell us to go down the dark road. He's going to meet us on the other side. He bears our burdens. He walks through with us. He takes the brunt of whatever darkness is ahead. And there will be no hardship we encounter that can separate us from his love. Just like an athlete can't win without competing, a farmer can't harvest without planting. So we can't expect to enter the kingdom without running the race set before us. Looking onto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The good news is that Jesus has already achieved the victory. He has already endured the cross and the wrath. And we just need to follow him. He'll give us grace too. Let's pray. Lord, you knew what we, we were when you saved us. We weren't the wealthy, the wise, the influential, the populated. We were your enemies, strangers, far from you. And yet, like a good shepherd, you sought us out, and you are still seeking us out. Lord, if there are any this evening who hear the call, the demand of the gospel, as you go out seeking your own, may they not turn a deaf ear. Lord Jesus, you came the first time in meekness, having nowhere to lay your, lay your head. But that will not be the case the second time you come. You are a lion the tribe of Judah, and you will bring a sword with you on that day. And yet there is mercy now for all who will come to you in faith, not with great resolutions or promises, trying to clean ourselves up before we get to you. No, coming to you with all of our sin and our failures and our miserable idols 
And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came not for the righteous, but the unrighteous, for the sick. And I pray for Christians here this evening who are struggling perhaps in the middle of division, in the wake of division, who are perhaps struggling even this evening to consider whether this is all just worth it. Lord, hold before their eyes in an unmistakable way the glory and the treasure of your kingdom. It will come. It is coming. One day all wrongs will be righted and you will rule. We look forward to that day, Lord. But until then, help us to be faithful. Help us to not pull back on those dark roads and the trials, to not be surprised when they come. May we be full of love and light and joy and laughter. Give us a good sense of humor in these days. And uh, Lord, thank you for what you have accomplished. And uh, be with us in the days ahead, we pray. In your name, amen.